Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Q&A, where we look at questions through the light of Scripture. Our desire is to take the Bible in context, rightly dividing the word of truth, to determine what we believe, rather than trying to approach the Bible to back up what we've been taught or what we already believe. Uh, we want the Bible to be our guide. We know that the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. If you're on from YouTube or Facebook, pop on and say hi. i uh, see you guys there. Uh, from One from YouTube, one from Facebook. Great to see you guys. We did a test just a little while ago. I think everything's working great. Uh, we changed some settings here to make it a little bit better. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to spend the next hour with you. If you have any questions, then write the word question down uh, in the comments section. Put question before it and then write down your question. Go ahead and reread it, check it, make sure that it's clear. And let's get right into the first question uh, that we have today, which was left at, um, at a previous uh, TruthQuest Q&A. Are there generational curses? What are your thoughts on this? So um, th there's a teaching, in, mostly in Pentecostal churches, that if you um, are struggling with an area, it might be a generational curse. And that curse has to be broken. So if you're struggling with lust or you're struggling with alcohol or you're struggling with nicotine, it may be a generational curse. So the question is, are there generational curses? And what are my thoughts on it? Uh, well, I want to uh, show you a passage here, kind of where uh, this has gotten from. And this is Numbers 14, and um, it's verse 18. It says, The Lord is suffering and uh, long suffering. <laughs> the Lord is long suffering and abundant mercy, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and the fourth generation. All right, so you can kind of see where you would get that idea from by that verse. Uh, the idea that God is going to pass on uh, from one person to, uh, to their children the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But I want to show you another passage which gives us a little bit more insight. And this is from the prophet Ezekiel. And this is Ezekiel 18 verse 20. Make sure I got the right one here. Yeah. So this is Ezekiel 18, 20. Let me go ahead and bring you back on here and show you this one. So this is Ezekiel 18, 20. It says, the soul whose sin shall die. The soul shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wicked of the wickedness shall be upon him. So here is uh, here is my thoughts. Uh, first of all, I believe that when God says he's going to share the sin of the father to the third and the fourth generation, it's talking about consequences. It's not talking about God supernaturally going, this person sinned sexually, so I'm going to cause this curse to go on from generation to generation. And that um, God holds us responsible for our sin. But I do think there are consequences. A dad who is an alcoholic, may pass on consequences of behavior to his children. Um, and it may be passed on to his child, maybe in the way that they discipline or the way that they act, just the fact that they weren't a good father. Um, but the Bible clearly states that a person is responsible for their own sin. Now, let's just say that I'm wrong. 
and that God had determined that within families, he was going to pass down to the generations the sins of the father, or maybe the good things of a father and a parent. When we come to Christ, Jesus became a curse on the cross so that we would not be under a curse. So even if this is really saying that, which I don't believe it is, but even if it is really saying that, you are not under a curse because you are in Jesus Christ. And you don't have to have uh, be set free from any generational uh, curses that are out there. So I don't believe that any of you are under generational curses if you are in Christ. Um, I don't even believe that God was talking about generation curse by visiting the iniquity of the father uh, to the sons, to the third and the fourth generation. I just think he's talking about consequences of sin and you will be responsible for your own sin and not your children. But I do believe that there is consequences to a godly life as well. That if you live a godly life and you have things right with God, that your children are blessed because of that. All right. So thank you for your question, the previous question. Uh, we've got some questions here already. If you have any, then write the word question down or put a question mark down and then uh, go ahead and write your question down. Make sure that it's clear. It's good to see you guys. Good to see you here from both uh, Facebook and YouTube. We hope you guys are having a great day and we're going to take some time to look into the word of God and really try to rightly divide God's word. So let me go ahead and get into, um, let's see, this screen and then we'll um, bring in a question here that we have from Sharon. So Sharon says, question, could you please explain Romans 5, 7? It sounds like basically both men are the same, righteous versus good man. All right, so let's go to Romans uh, 5, 7. Let's see what that verse is. Romans 5, verse 7. Let me go ahead and bring, that, uh, bring the scriptures up for you. It says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will die. Um, let's see, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, so um, a great verse, by the way, right? And um, so could you please explain Romans 5, 7? It sounds like basically both men are the same, righteous versus good. Um, so yeah, I think that it's just talking about from a human perspective that if you're going to die for someone, that if there's a really righteous person, like a top-notch guy, um, that someone would die for him. Uh, for a good person, so not quite as top-notch as him. We're talking about from a human perspective, right? Because God is so far above all of us uh, that the differences between us are minute. Uh, but uh, it's saying that God demonstrated his love for us that why we were still sinners. So the contrast there is not between this righteous man who would, one would die for or the good man one would die for, but it's between us who were sinners. We weren't righteous and we weren't good. And yet God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for you on your best day. He didn't die for you on, your, uh, on the day that you did the very best thing that you're most proud of. He died for you on your worst day and still loves you.
and he demonstrated that love for us. The cross is a demonstration of the tremendous love that God has for each one of us and what an awesome thing that is. So I think that that is the um, the difference between them again here. So uh, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. So it's just making a point that people will rarely give up their lives even for a righteous man. Perhaps for a good man, someone would even die. So kind of a step down. But God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. us. Much more than having been justified by his blood. And it goes on. Um, so uh, um, good, uh, good passage that speaks to us of the tremendous love uh, that God has for us. I have been um, talking recently as well about the fact that the Bible not only says that God loves us, right, with the agape love, loves us because he has to, but the Bible also uses the word phileo to speak about God loving us. God loves us with the friendship love. He is fond of us, but he demonstrated that love while we were yet sinners. Thank you, Sharon. I appreciate your question. Um, we have a question here that looks like a long one um, from Cheryl. Let me see if I can bring this in and what this is going to do here. I don't know what this is going to do. Whoa. Okay. Um, let me see if I can get the gist of what this question is. Uh, does the Bible give us more information on what happened to people who continue to mock God over and over again? Pastor Robert, what do you think? I know many educated fools who have master's degrees and doctorate degrees, mostly college professors who told me the Bible was juvenile and laugh when they say, that we are all mentally ill and taking our imaginary friend, right? And a man I know has even um, given the swear finger to God and dared God to show himself. I find some scriptures on mockings, but I'm looking for more thoughts on the scriptures on what God might do with these people. Proverbs 19.29, judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools. Proverbs 21.11, when the scoffer is punished, um, the naive become wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. All right, Cheryl, thank you very much. Um, yeah, so um, the, the, the mockers, and I find that oftentimes atheists are mockers towards the Christian life, which is really interesting to me. Why, why do they care so much about Christians? And why are they so obsessed with God? Now, I realize that atheists are going to say, we're not obsessed with God. They, you know, atheists are going to, there's videos where they say, we're not obsessed with God, but they are. It's like, they want to talk about God all the time. And it seems to me, if God doesn't exist, why does it matter to you what I believe? And if I believe something silly, if I believe that Mickey Mouse is God and you're an atheist and you just go, well, we're all just going to pass away. It doesn't matter what you believe. Why would you spend time mocking me for what I believe? Why would you take so much time to do it? I think that that speaks to me of the fact that God has revealed to all men himself. And that's in Romans chapters one and two. It talks about the creation being a revelation, but then a revelation that God gives to individuals within them. And I think even though atheists will mentally go, I don't believe in God, and they really believe that, I think there's something inside of them that reveals that there is God, that they don't know. I'm not saying that they're secretly being deceptive. I'm saying they really believe that they don't believe in God, but there's something about God that causes them to be in that position of mocking. Um, does God have a hotter place in hell for mockers? Um, I don't know. 
Uh, it seems to me we are judged by the light that we have and that there's uh, the city of, of Capernaum was going to be judged, it was going to be more uh, tolerable for Sodom and more on the day of judgment than for the city of Capernaum because Jesus had done all those miracles there. So I think that's the way in which God judges people. Um, and I don't know whether God is going to judge them harsher because they blasphemed him or mocked him. I think all people do that. Um, I do know, well, let me, let me take that back. I'm trying to think of scriptures that relate to it, Cheryl. And um, the Bible says that God will tie a mil, that if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, and he's talking about new Christians. Also, by the way, he's talking about children. It would be better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea. It's not saying that's what's going to happen to you because you caused one of these little ones to stumble. It says it would be better for you that you don't, instead of making them stumble, that you would tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea rather than causing some one of these little ones to stumble, whether it's a child or whether it's a child of God who's a, who's a, who's a new Christian. So yeah, maybe there is a, a, a harsher judgment for them as I'm thinking about God's judgment towards those uh, who, are, who are mockers and who just mock God. I mean, there have been atheists in the past who stand up and say, if God is real, then strike me with lightning. And then they're quiet for a minute and a half and it's really awkward. And then they say, see, there must not be any God. And um, so there's all kinds of this mocking that takes place and goes on. But I am st it's still curious to me. If you're an atheist, why would you be so obsessed with God? And, and maybe you're going to come on and say, well, I'm, I'm an atheist and I'm not obsessed with God. Okay, well, that's fine. I don't know that all atheists are, but it sure seems to me like the atheists that we see interact oftentimes have this hatred towards God and are obsessed with him and obsessing him as not being true. When if you're really atheist, then what does it matter? I mean, we all believe in what we believe and we're going to die and go away, right? If, we're, if you're a materialist, then you're going to believe that. And um, so... Uh, uh, interesting question. I appreciate it there, Sharon. Good to see you guys. Um, so um, we have another question here from, uh, did I say Sharon before? Was it Sharon? Yeah, it was Cheryl. So we have a question here from Sharon, uh, from Shelly, sorry. So I'm going to um, go ahead and put that question up. Do you think that what's going on in Afghanistan is related to the end times? Um, I believe that what's going on in the Middle East in general is related to the end times. Uh, I have been, ever since this thing has happened, I've been wanting to be able to take time to look up the region of Afghanistan, compare that to what the Bible says the region is, and see whether there's any passages that talk about it. Um, I've got it on my list of homework to do, um, but I haven't been able to get to it. I think that, you know, you've got Syria, which is not too far away from, from Afghanistan. And you've got um, Lebanon, which is next to Syria. And of course, you've got Israel. And you've got, I mean, Syria is just in this devastated mess now. And Afghanistan is on its way. And what an absolute tragedy for these people that are in Afghanistan now. Um, for these people that are going to be under Taliban rule. And um, boy, I, I hope we can pray for them and we can make a difference somehow in their lives. Um, but I think that, yeah, the Middle East, what's taking place in the Middle East is all connected to the last days. I don't know of any passages off the top of my head that would speak of the region of Afghanistan. And um, 
Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking biblically. Uh, Iran is Persia, Babylon is Iraq, and next to that is Afghanistan, and then uh, um, Pakistan, of course, on the other side of that. Um, and I'm not sure where it equates in the Bible. I need to do a little bit of uh, research on that. So let me be able to do that. Shelly, thank you very much. Um, I'll do some on that and hopefully be able to talk about that on Saturday. Have some um, answers for you on Saturday. All right, so thank you for your question, Shelly. I appreciate that. Um, if you have any questions, you can write them down. Um, all right, so Yvette has a question here. Let me go ahead and, and uh, bring this in. So she has more questions about generational curses. Um, how are genera generational curses broken? And Yvette, um, if you are a Christian, I don't believe you're under any curse. Jesus hung on the cross. And even if generational curses are true, once I become a Christian, I am a child of God and there is no generational curse that would be over me. But I don't believe there are generational curses. Uh, the passage that I brought up is that God says, I will visit, and that's in um, Numbers um, 14, 18, where he says, I will pass on the iniquities of the fathers to the children of the third and the fourth generation. And I believe that's talking about consequences and not talking about a curse. So there are consequences in people's lives when their parents are living a sinful lifestyle. And I believe there are consequences in children's lives when we're living a righteous lifestyle as well. So the way that generational curses are broken, if there are generational curses, is by the blood of Jesus Christ. He hung on the cross and became a curse for us and we are not under a curse, but instead the Bible tells us that when we receive Jesus as our savior, that we are saved, that we are born again, and we are not under any kind of a curse. All right, Yvette, if you feel like you're under a curse, um, then just make sure things are right between you and God, and you are, you are not under a curse. You don't need anybody to pray for you or lay hands on you or to break a curse over you. All of that stuff is not biblical at all. We're given no biblical direction on that. Um, any way, shape, or form, all right? So we have a question from Amber. Amber is, wants to know about the 144,000, which would be in the book of Revelation. The 144,000 that received the seal of God, will those people be in Israel? I know they appear with Jesus on Mount Zion, so I don't know if they will be, um, they will be all in Israel or gather there in that specific time if that makes sense. Um, yeah, so I think what you're asking, Amber, is are these 144,000 people, the, the, um, these 144,000 that are sealed by God who are evangelists who go into Jerusalem and tell people about Christ during those days, and I believe they have a part in all of Israel being saved. The Bible says that the tribulation period is a time of Jacob's trouble, and yet they will be saved out of it. We have the... Um, we also have the uh, two witnesses that I believe play a part in it. Um, and I don't know that we know. We know that they are sealed. We know that they're in Israel during the tribulation period. But I don't know that you and I know uh, when, uh, whether or not they're there in the very beginning. Whether they could just be Jews that live around the world that are brought into Israel at that time or whether they are Jewish people who are there. I assume, I've always assumed that they are there. Um, so I think your question makes sense, but it tells us that during the tribulation period, God is not gonna leave the people here 
without a witness. They're going to have witnesses. There's even angels that proclaim the gospel through the skies. There are people that are going to come to Christ uh, who, um, uh, who don't know him. People that will know when we end up disappearing, as bizarre as that sounds, I know it sounds bizarre, but when we end up being taken in a moment twinkling of an eye and caught up to meet the Lord in the air and forever being with the Lord, when we go away, there will be some who will realize what have happened and they will give their lives to Christ and the Jewish nation will be saved um, during the time of Jacob's trouble. So thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Um, Andre, good to see you. We have a question from Andre. Andre says, does God still send distressing spirits to those who do not have the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit departed Saul, 1 Samuel 16, 14, it seems the Lord sent a distressing spirit. So Andre, it's a good question. Um, as we think of these Old Testament passages and how things work today, do they work in the same way? Uh, I, I, even the, the idea of a distressing spirit. So is this a demonic spirit that's distressing that was sent by God to, to cause him to be distressed? Is this an angelic angel that is not a fallen spirit that is causing Saul distress? These are, these are questions we don't have the answers to, which are, are really interesting questions when you think about that. So does God allow a distressing spirit to fall on some people today? Um, and I guess the answer to that is, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's any scriptures that would tell us. We know that if we're in Christ, the evil one can't touch us. We know that we have authority. We know the Holy Spirit is inside of us, so we're not gonna have a demonic spirit inside of us at the same time. Um, when the Holy Spirit departed, did God still send the stressing spirit upon those who do not have the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm just going to have to say, I don't, I don't know. I think that there are demonic spirits that harass people who are in the world. Um, I think they can be harassed by them. And so I really don't know. Um, it's a, it's a good thought. Um, Saul was particularly called by God, then became prideful. God spent the spirit to distress him. David was able to play the music and sue them. Yeah, so good question, Andre. I'm not sure that I have uh, the answer to that. I hate when a question comes up and I end up with a I don't know, but I would rather give you an I don't know than to make something up and sound like, oh yes, I have all the answers uh, that are out there. Obviously that I don't. Uh, okay, so um, Andre has another question, all right, uh, from the book of Joel. Andre says, um, can you please give a breakdown of Joel uh, 2, 28 through 31? It sounds similar to what's going on today with everyone claiming um, they have rapture dreams. Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right, sure. Let's take a look at that. So we are going to go to uh, Joel. Um, and then we're going to go to Joel 2, 28. And we're going to look at 28 through 31. So if you guys do have references, we'll take time to, to pull them up and take a look at them. So Joel 2, 28 through 31. Uh, okay, all right. So I got it. Let me go ahead and put the scriptures up here on the screen for you. We'll take a look at it. 
So this is Joel 2, 28 through 31. Andres asked if it's similar to what's going on today with people having rapture dreams. So let's take a look at it and see if we can figure anything out. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I shall show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood, fire, pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great, oops, um, the coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. All right, so Andre, I see this passage uh, as being uh, fulfilled in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all people and the, there's gifts of the Spirit that are going to be given uh, and then that that is going to continue on from that time until the Lord returns. That his spirit is going to be working in people's lives, right? And it will come to pass that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons, sons, and your daughters shall prophesy, your and dreams, change time, and see visions. Um, and in those days, I'll do signs of the wonders and error. And so that's the very end when they come. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know that this would be equated to people seeing and having rapture dreams today. Um, I'm always, I'm kind of a... I'm kind of a skeptical person, Andre. I, um, when people talk about having dreams that are given to them by God, when people talk about seeing the future or prophecies, um, I'm usually skeptical and need to be kind of proven to me. Um, I don't know that that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's just the way that I am. So when I see that someone's had a dream about the rapture or they have had a dream about going to heaven, I always kind of am skeptical towards those things. Um, I know that God has given us his word. Everything that we need is within the word of God. So I don't know why he would have to give us these, these outside things. But I also know that the Bible says don't despise prophecy. So you got to be careful that you don't despise uh, prophecy that's out there. Um, I do know that God's doing many things around the world today. Uh, we, are seeing, we are seeing people come to Christ in Asia, in, in the Middle East, um, in India in just ways that are just phenomenal. And uh, a lot of it happens supernatural. People will have dreams of the Messiah coming to them, which is very powerful. So um, I think that this is speaking of you and I receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That there's a time in the Old, in the Old Testament, God would give the, the Holy Spirit to Samson, to Saul, what we talked about earlier. Um, to, to, the Holy Spirit would come upon certain leaders, prophets, kings. Uh, but in the last days, he pours out his, flesh, his spirit on everyone. So God's spirit is poured out on all of us. And we have the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we can have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us or upon us to empower us to do the work that God's called us to do. And that's what that verse is talking about. All right, Andre, thank you very much for your question. Um, if you're just joining us, really good to have you guys here. We take time to look at questions through the lens of scripture. If you have a question, write down question and then put your question down. Read it a couple of times, make sure it's clear um, so that I can clearly see. And uh, we, are, we are looking at it in the light of, of, of scripture. All right, so uh, we have a question here from What's Normal. Good to see you, What's Normal. Um, do you think Biden pulled out of Afghanistan so the Muslims could get friendly force vehicles in order to go to Israel. Uh, do I think that God's working in Biden to 
leave things behind so that they'll be able to attack Israel. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I would be able to answer that. Um, I have no idea. I do know that forces from the north, and Afghanistan would be the north, are going to come down against Israel in the Gog and Magog War of Ezekiel 38. We also know that it's the last days because God says, in the last days, I will put my hook into your mouth and I will drag you down and I will show you them where they are and I will speak to you. So we do know that those things happen during that time. Um, I don't know that I can, can say specifically that this is God working within Biden to leave um, things that are there. All right, things there to be able for them to go against Israel. Annika has a question. Annika says, um, what is the best way to study the book of Psalms? All right, thank you very much, Annika. Good to see you, by the way. Um, the book of Psalms is a hard book to, um, to read because it is um, a psalm, it's psalms, it's sayings, it's, it's, it's worshiping God. It was written to music a lot of times. So it's hard just to sit down and read through the book of Psalms. I've talked about this before, teaching through the Bible. Um, I've taught through the Bible several times, taught the book of Psalms several times. And um, the way that I've chosen to do it now is to come back and do a few Psalms periodically and not just go through 150 Psalms. Um, so what's the best way for us to read it? I think you could take a Psalm a day, maybe with your other reading and you could read it. Then you could break up Psalms 119 into something smaller. Um, there are, uh, smaller passages that are there. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. It's got the most chapters. It's got the most verses. Somebody came up to me after I said that, said Proverbs does. I said, not even close. And then I had to check it. I thought, maybe I'm wrong. There are a lot of short Psalms. So I went back and checked and no, Psalms is the longest and it's got the longest, it's got the most verses. It's got the most books that are in it. So maybe taking the book of Psalms and reading Psalms one, one day and then doing a Bible reading with it, then reading Psalms two, it's good to get familiar with it. There's so many good messianic Psalms, so many good things that are in it that for us as Christians to be able to study it, find out what's there is very, very powerful and really, really important. Um, kind of like the book of Proverbs as well. Uh, you can just kind of sit down and read the book of Proverbs, two or three Proverbs at a time and make your way through the book. Um, but I would include Psalms into Bible reading. A lot of Bible reading plans have Old Testament, New Testament, and the book of Psalms in there. Um, so just make your way through the book, adding it to your Bible reading one chapter at a time, and then break up Psalms 119 may be a helpful way to be able to do that. All right, Annika, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Good to see you. So uh, what's normal has another question. Uh, what's normal says, uh, where does it say that we are grafted into Israel? Why would Christians not be translated into 144,000 one second after the rapture? All right, so um, if I can think where that said what's normal is um, in, we're talking about grafting in, I think, it's Romans 9. It might be Romans 8, but I think it's Romans 9. Let me just see if I can look here really quick and see. Um, uh, I'm just, just kind of reading through here to see if I can find the, the grafting passage. Um, it is in Romans um, 
and I don't see it here, so it might be Romans 8. Um, let me just go ahead and tell you what it says in there, um, and, and, and you can look it up. Just look up um, grafted into the divine scripture, and it will pull up exactly where it's at, and you can go back and read it. Uh, so what it says there is that we as Christians, that Israel is set aside until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So they're not set aside forever. There's this time of the Gentiles that Jesus talked about and Paul talks about. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. That's Matthew 24. Jerusalem today is under Israeli control and the Temple Mount is becoming more and more under Israeli control. Even as we speak, there are groups of people from Israel, Israelites that are going up on the Temple Mount and this has not happened. This is new stuff, new things taking place. And so I think that the time of the Gentiles is very close to the end uh, because Jerusalem is that sign when the time of the Gentiles is done. So then in Romans 8, it says, or Romans 11, it says, maybe it's Romans 8, 11. Um, I think it's Romans 11. <laughs> Let me look here really quick and see if I can, uh, um, I wanna get that verse. Um, Romans 8, 11, all right. So I think it's Romans 11 that says that Israel is going to be saved, that all of Israel is going to be saved. Um, but it, it, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And that tells us that they, there's gonna come a time when they see things. Um, I, I quoted earlier the passage that says that the day of the Lord is a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, but he shall be saved out of it. And it says then again that all of Israel will be saved. In Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out a spirit of grace and mercy upon Jerusalem and they will mourn for me as one who mourns for an only son. So there's coming a time when the entire, when all of the nation of Israel, and I don't know whether all means all or all means most there, all right? One thing I know is all never means few, okay? But it can mean most sometimes and it can mean every single one of them but they are going to receive Jesus as their Messiah probably after they realize that the peace treaty they made with the Antichrist during the tribulation period was so bad. And so then they will receive Jesus as their Messiah and they will end up being saved. And so we were grafted onto the vine. As Christians, the church, the ecclesia, we are grafted onto the vine so that we are also part of that root we are Judeo-Christianity. We are part of that root where we were grafted on. Doesn't mean we replaced them. And, and then they will be regrafted on again and they will be saved. And um, we will all, there's 24 elders in the book of Revelation. I believe that's the 12 apostles. And I believe it's the 12 sons of, of Jacob, Israel. And they represent those two. And they are going to be saved and they are going to be grafted on. Uh, but really that verse is just telling us, don't be haughty. Don't think you're better than Israel because God could, could reject, God could reject you for a time and graft back onto the vine. But there are promises that we have as Christians. There are promises that Israel has. And no matter what, Israel is going to keep those prom. God's going to keep those promises towards the nation of Israel. Covenant theology replaced with theology just is not true. God is going to keep his promises to Israel. He said, I will never forget you, my people. I've carved you on the palms of my hand. Even if a mother forgets the child in her womb, I will never forget you, my people. All right, what's normal? Thank you. Um, we are not Jewish, and that's why I don't believe we'll be, we'll, we're going to be gone. Um, the, we will not go through the tribulation period. 
And so there's no way that we will be transferred and then brought back as the 144,000. All right. So um, we have a question here from Renee. Renee, good to see you. Um, Renee says, um, question, can you verify and clarify how many heavens there are? Thank you, Pastor Robert. God bless you too. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so Paul talked about being caught up into the third heavens. Probably when he was stoned in, I think it was Lystra, and maybe even died. Was taken outside of the city as if he was dead, but then he either came back to life or he revived and he came back into the city. But Paul says, I know a man, whether in the spirit or out of the spirit, I do not know. So maybe he doesn't even know whether or not he died or whether or not, but, but he says that he went to the third heavens. He was caught up into the third heavens and he saw things quite literally in the Greek that says were illegal for him to be able to say. So the third heavens would be where God is. He had a vision of heaven. And this is one of the reasons that I believe when people say, well, I went up into heaven. Let me go ahead and explain to you what I saw. I saw a room with all the arms and legs of people that hadn't claimed them, that they could have gotten them back if they would have received it and believed it, or these other weird things that people say. I don't believe they could give us a description of heaven because Paul said it would be, I can't tell you it. He couldn't describe it. Paul couldn't describe it. The second heavens would be where the stars are, the skies, birds flying in the air, airplanes, the space station. That would all be, um, that would all be the second heavens and the first heaven would be the one that is right above us. So I said where birds are, but where birds are would be the first heaven, our atmosphere. The second heavens would be the stars, the skies, the moons, the planets. Um, the, that would be the second heavens and then the third heavens will be where God's at. That's at least how I see it, all right? That's my understanding of the fir first, second, and third heavens. I realize there are those that say that there are seven heavens, right? I think the Mormons talk about seven heavens, not biblical at all, all right? So Renee, thank you very much for your question. Hopefully uh, that is helpful. Another long question here from Ishmael. Uh, must be on Facebook because I know they don't let you write these long these longer questions on um, uh, on uh, YouTube. So let me go ahead and just read this. I'm going to go ahead and just read it off of there rather than bringing it on because it'll fill up the whole page. Um, does God love everyone unconditionally? Let me see what I can do when this brings it in. All right. All right, let's just go ahead and read this. Uh, does God love everyone unconditionally? I see scripture, Psalms 5-4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Uh, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehoods. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, knowing that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How do we conclude that God loves everyone unconditionally? Thank you. All right, Ishmael, thank you for your question. I appreciate that. And uh, thanks for putting that passage up so we could just take a look at it and see it. So, okay, so the Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so that means that salvation is open to everyone and that God loves everyone. And I think that that is even individuals who are bloodthirsty, um, all of those things that it says in the Old Testament. However, if that person does not repent and come to Christ, then God's going to judge them. His wrath 
his indignation, and we could say his hatred, will be poured out towards them because they did not receive Jesus as their savior. God is a merciful God, and God would show mercy to anyone who would return and repent for him. The Bible says in, uh, I know this one's in Romans chapter nine, Esau I have loved, uh, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God through his foreknowledge knows whether or not people are going to receive him as their savior. And you know, you, you've heard it said that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Well, I think that's true if that sinner repents and comes to Christ and that God has a desire to see them come to the Lord. But if they reject him, if they're living their own life, if they're just going about murdering people, then yeah, I think that God hates them and God will pour out his anger upon them. Um, could they repent and could God's justice be satisfied? Yes. But I think um, that God's anger, wrath, and hatred is justified towards those who are in the world who don't receive Jesus. But God desires that they would be saved and that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. Hopefully that's clear. Ishmael, I appreciate your question. I think it's a really good one. Hopefully that, um, that answered the question that you had. All right. So we have a question here from John. John P says, question, many experts have identified the ancient city of Petra as the place where God will hide the remnant of Israel in the last days. I can't find it anywhere in the Bible. All right, John, thank you. Uh, that's because it's not there. There's no place that says that it's Petra that's, that's, they're gonna be, that they're going to be hidden in. Um, these are just people coming up with ideas that they think that this is going to be a place where they could be hidden. I've often thought, I don't know how they could be hidden there when a plane flying over Petra, if you've ever been to Petra, you know, these canyons don't have covers on them. So there's, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing place, by the way. I mean, we know it from the treasury in Indiana Jones and the, um, and the what is it, the last, uh, the last Crusade? right where it's the place where the the uh, the cup was found all right and um but if you go down further from the treasury if you go to petra and you go down from the treasury there's so many huge things that are there there's huge theaters there's huge thrones there's there's amazing things that have been carved into these walls by these people that the um can't remember the people group the Edomites maybe who carved them out as uh memorial stones they were basically tombs that were carved out and there's no place to hide anyone there so i mean could i be wrong could god somehow supernaturally use petra but god could supernaturally use any place that he wants to use uh to be able to hide people so i don't know of the connection if it's out there if there is a connection that's out there i don't know of it there might be right and if there is and you know of it then then give us the scripture and we'll take a look at it um but i haven't been able to find anything in the bible either John, that would help us to be able to understand um, why people are saying that they would be hidden in the city of Petra. All right, so thank you for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have another question here from, uh, from Renee. Renee says, um, uh, a question, um, I am confused with my Bible version. Which Bible version should a beginner read? Thank you. 
All right. Uh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your question. Um, if as, as a brand new believer, uh, I like the New Living Translation. This is a paraphrased Bible. It's not for Bible study. It's I use the King James Version because there's a word associated with each word. And when you find it in italics as you're looking at the New King James Version, that means they add it to be able to make sense. So there's no word that corresponds with it in the Greek. Um, there's transliterate Bibles and there's direct translations. Then there's paraphrased. Uh, paraphrase is somebody looking at it, determining what it's saying, and then writing it in, in a very easy to understand. And I think the New Living Bible does that very easily. And I suggest new believers read it. Um, once you grow, you mature some, and it's time for you to start studying the Bible, to really pour into what the Bible has to say and what it is that you believe, um, and, and really comparing scripture to scripture, then you're gonna wanna get something like the New King James Bible, um, the NASB is a really good study Bible. Uh, but for beginners, the, the New Living Translation is a really good one. And um, as I said, it's not really good for trans for uh, Bible study, but it's really good just to get familiar with it. And there's a point where you've just got to get familiar uh, with what the Word of God says. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. And we have a question here from Sharon who says, um, if you're physically not doing good due to depression or major spiritual oppression, what type of fast would be one to do to ask for breaking strongholds? All right, so if you're depressed or if you are spiritually oppressed, um, I, would, I would not tell someone to fast who is depressed or oppressed. I think first of all, we have to break these things down. So when you read through the book of Psalms, we just talked about the book of Psalms. When you're reading through the book of Psalms, you find that times the psalmist is so depressed and distraught. And usually as he prays his prayer, you know, why are you so far from me? Why are you not hearing me? He says to his soul, be lifted up, believe in God. So he speaks to himself. So I think first of all, as a Christian, getting into a depressed place is not a, is not a sinful thing. It's not an ungodly thing. People judge people who get depressed. I think that we can have, we can become so self-absorbed that we lend to depression. I think we can be doing things in our lives that we're just not, we're just not doing the things that God's called us to do. We're living for the things of the world and we just find ourselves depressed. And that depression may be, it may be like when you touch a hot iron and the iron's hot and you burn yourself, you gotta burn. Don't do that again. And so depression can be connected to that. But it also can just be someone going through a really deep, dark time. And if that's you, I would, call, I would be like the psalmist and I would call out to God. I would ask God to come in and help you if you are depressed. Now, spiritually obsessed, uh, excuse me, spiritually obsessed. That might be a good thing to be seriously, spiritually obsessed. Spiritually oppressed would be the idea that there's some demonic spirit or spirits that are oppressing you. This is different than just depression, 
which may be your spirit cast down, your soul cast down, you going through a season of depression, maybe there's something going on that you need to correct to get rid of the depression. Um, but I would say that you would pray that Jesus, the stronger than the strong man, would bind the enemy. The Bible says whatever is bound on earth would be bound in heaven. I would go to one of your pastors and ask him to pray for you, to pray that that spirit, that if you feel like there's a spiritual oppression, tell them that. To say, I feel like there's something spiritual around me. I can't seem to shake it. Um, no, the Bible says if you are in Christ, the evil one can't touch you. Jesus told the disciples in Luke chapter 19, no, Luke 11, verse 19, I believe, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you, which is such an absolutely incredible promise uh, that we receive from God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So he's looking to devour you. As a Christian, you have authority over the, the gates of hell will not prevail against you, right? You, I give you the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. This is, this is a promise of success. And so if someone were to come to me, I would remind them of all of these passages. I, rem, I would pray for them. I would say if you're doing anything in your life that would open up a door towards Satan, any sin, unconfessed, unrepented kind of sin that you may be doing that would open the door for that, then I would say to stop doing that and ask God to bind it. Fasting, you may say, I wanna, I wanna be closer to, to, to Christ and, I, and I, I, I don't believe I'm not close. So you fast that you might be able to do that, but you fast and you pray. And um, what type of fasting? You know, any fast, but that's not necessarily how I would deal with someone who had depression or was needed to break, um, needed to, to some kind of major spiritual oppression. Now, breaking a stronghold, remember the absence, When if you're neglecting the flesh, there is no power for the overcoming of strongholds in it. The, the Bible tells us that there's no power in that. If there's a stronghold in your life, then you need to struggle against it. You need to fight against it. Strongholds are not easily broken the Bible talks about us being renewed day by day. Our outer man is perishing, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. And so when I'm talking to someone that has a stronghold in their life, I tell them, look, repent, turn from the sin that they have the stronghold on, be better tomorrow than you are today, draw closer to Christ, ask him to help you, look at small steps and see them as positive things and know that you will overcome these strongholds. And if you do struggle and fall, if you sin with the stronghold, then repent from it and ask God to forgive you, make things right between you and God. That's the process of that inner man being renewed day by day. All right, Sharon, so thank you very much. Um, if it's you that's depressed and spiritually oppressed, I pray that God would deliver you. I pray that God would give you peace. I pray that God would move in your life and that you would not be dominated by any stronghold. And I would pray the same for any Christian because that's not the way that God wants us to live. Not that depression doesn't happen, maybe even to all of us from time to time, all right? Just so you know that. It's not something that only happens to one person, all right? So thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your question. So um, we have another question from John P. Uh, and, I, and I've thought of this before, John. It says, um, could the survivors coming out of the Holocaust be the dry bones Daniel wrote of? Um, I think they could represent that for sure. 
I think that the dry bones that he's talking about is Israel that is scattered all around the world. And remember, just the Holocaust isn't the only place they suffered. They suffered in Russia. They suffered in Poland. They, they suffered in Germany. They, they suffered all around the world. Um, even the United States turned Jewish um, people that had been in the Holocaust away um, when boats came to the United States. Anti-Semitism, I think, is demonic and it's around. It's around even today. And um, there were many of them that suffered. I think God's talking about the suffering in all of them, all of the different persecutions in Russia and, and, all, and, and East um, Europe and all around the world that they went through, that God brings them back together and gave them a homeland. They were cast out. They were destroyed. Think about the destruction of seven, excuse me, of 70 AD, where there were hundreds of thousands of them that were killed, that were slaughtered at the wrath of the Romans. Just awful. This is what Jesus wept about when he was coming on the day that he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. It's what he was weeping about, that they would go through this. And so they've gone through so much persecution and all of that is a type of the, these bones coming back together again and God restoring the nation of Israel. When we see Israel today, it is a sign. It's a sign that God is at work because God said that he would do these things and he did them. So I think that that is the fulfillment. And certainly it's a reminder because these people that came out of the Holocaust did just look like skeletons, didn't they, John? I mean, they had gone through so much. They literally been starved to the point and kept alive just as skeletons. And, and, um, and God was able to restore them. And there were people that, I don't know if there's anybody still alive from the Holocaust, but many of them lived for many, many years after that. There may still be, by the way, some people who are alive uh, today from the Holocaust. All right, John, I appreciate that. So yeah, in a way I see that. And I think overall, it's a bigger picture of just the restoration that God has uh, for the, um, the entire nation of Israel. All right. So we have a question here from Christina. Christina, good to have you here with us. She says, um, question, Pastor, after King Nebuchadnezzar was disciplined for his pride and became like an animal for seven years, he acknowledged God. Was he then God's child. Uh, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Um, it certainly seems like it. I don't know what Nebuchadnezzar did after that. I don't know whether it was complete and total saving faith after he was humbled for those seven years. But when you go back and read the statement that Nebuchadnezzar makes, is it there in the end of Daniel chapter four? Is that where it's at? I'm trying to remember. Let me just take a quick look again. Hopefully, if I take this time to find it, I'll be able to find it and read what Nebuchadnezzar said. Let's see. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. And um, let's see. Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. So we're in the right place. Nebuchadnezzar praises God. So let me go ahead and bring you in here. And let's read through a little bit of this and see if we can see whether or not this sounds like real faith or not on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. This is after seven years of acting like an animal outside. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is, a gener is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. 
He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what uh, have I done? At the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my honor, my splendor returned to me. Uh, my counselors and nobles resorted, uh, resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom. Excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are true and his ways just, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. So based on that, um, then I would say that I think that Nebuchadnezzar did become a believer and, and would be in heaven based on that. Now, there may be something that happened in Nebuchadnezzar after that that I'm missing, that I'm not remembering, um, but based on that, I would say that he came out of that humiliation and had decided that he was going to, to give his life to, to God. And um, like the rest of the Old Testament saints, it was acknowledged and believing in God, whether it was Ruth or whether it was Abraham, who was prior to Israel, um, that they were able to go to heaven. And so I think based on that, the Nebuchadnezzar did make his way to heaven. Good, um, good observation, good thought. Uh, we have another thought from Annika. Annika says, um, why did Jesus have scars on him after the resurrection? Um, I believe there's a reference to the scars in Revelation as well. Um, I, he carries the scars throughout all of eternity. Think of it. The, those are, those are going to be the only scars in heaven. We're going to be completely restored. We won't have any scars. The only scars in heaven are the scars that Jesus carries in his hands and feet and in his side. The lamb that as if it had been slain, Revelation chapter 4, I think, um, speaks of that great gift that he gave us. That our sins have been forgiven us. That he died for us, that we could be forgiven. And he carries those scars throughout all of eternity, which is a heavy, just absolutely amazing thought. All right, Annika, thank you very much um, for that. Uh, I think it's, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Looks like we have time for one more question. All right. Um, so I'm just going to go through here and find our, our last question for today. If you guys um, want to ask questions, I'll be looking at the end of this one for questions to add to, um, to the first question for future Q&As. All right. Uh, it looks like, um, is that it here? Did we answer all the questions? I think we have. All right. Well, perfect then. Uh, so God bless you guys. Thank you for being here. May the Lord bless you in all that you're doing. Um, may God take the middle of this week and really cause you to draw closer uh, to him. Uh, I'm really glad that we made it all the way through this um, Q&A without having uh, the computer cut out. So it looks like the stuff that we did uh, for the computer here worked and I hope everything is well. Um, and uh, we have a, a, a service in a couple of hours and we're gonna be looking at 1 Thessalonians. It's the first book of the, it's the earliest scriptures to be written. So you have 1 Thessalonians and there's a real significance to that. And I'll be talking about what that significance is uh, we'll also be talking about the theme passage in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to 
study over the next few months on Wednesday nights, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So join us. It'll be live here on YouTube in just a couple of hours at four at 6 o'clock. It's almost 4 o'clock now. And um, on the weekends, we're in the book of Luke. So I look forward to seeing you there. We'll, we'll have another uh, Truth Quest Q&A uh, this coming up uh, uh, Saturday. So I look forward to seeing you there. All right, guys. God bless you. It's good to see you. Have a good night. I am going to go ahead.